A story is told that after World War II, a general, a young lieutenant, and a young lieutenant boarded a train to England. The only seats that were left were across from a beautiful young lady and her grandmother. The general and the lieutenant sat facing the uh, woman, uh, and as the train pulled out, it went through a long tunnel. For about 10 seconds, there was total darkness. And in the silence of that moment, those in the carriage heard two things, a kiss and a slap. Everyone on the train had their own assumptions of what happened. The young lady thought to herself, I'm flattered that the lieutenant kissed me, but I'm terribly embarrassed that my grandmother hit him. The grandmother thought, I'm aggravated that the young man kissed my granddaughter, but I'm so proud that she had the courage to retaliate and defend herself. The general sat there, pondering to himself, my lieutenant showed a lot of guts in kissing the girl, but why did she slap me by mistake? The lieutenant was the only one on the train who really knew what happened. In that brief moment of darkness, he made the most of the opportunity to kiss a pretty girl and slap his lieutenant. <laughs> Assumptions. Assumptions can have you jump to all sorts of conclusions, can't they? Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that we can come to this time in your word. And as we, we delve into it, may it wash over us afresh the things that you want to say to us, the things that you want to remind us of, the journey that you want to take us on to be more like you. Help us be at work in us and in this time we pray. Amen. I was chatting with some people in our life group recently about the assumptions that happen in the Bible. And a classic example is in John chapter 9 verses 1 to 7, where we read of an underlying assumption about disabilities. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been, born, uh, been blind from birth, Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Notice the assumption there. It's not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light. Of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and then spread the mud over the man's eyes. He told him, Go and wash yourself in the pool of Siloam, which Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. You see, in Jesus' day, there was often the assumption that sin was the reason behind someone's disability. That health and wealth was a demonstration of God's favour. But on this occasion, Jesus wanted to challenge the assumptions that came with it, to bring freedom and restoration back to the, uh, to the one in the community who had been so stigmatised. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 46. Mark chapter 10, verse 46. 
Now, there's a significant turning point that's happened in Jesus' ministry years. We read about it in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke um, in their accounts of the life of Jesus. Following Jesus' transfiguration, there is a methodical movement of Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem where he would die by being crucified and rise again three days later. You see, the the Passover celebration was coming. So religious pilgrims travelled from the regions um, around Jerusalem um, and the wider area to Jerusalem. And Jesus and his disciples most likely travelled from Galilee, heading south through Perea on the eastern side of the Jordan River to bypass Samaria. Then, nearing Jericho, they crossed the Jordan River again and then they would come up through Jericho. Now, Jericho was a residential area uh, for a number of people who served in the temple in Jerusalem. They would travel the road from Jericho up to Jerusalem and serve in the temple for a period of time. And then when they'd finished their time of service, they would then come back down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And um, it was kind of like a, a bit of a, an enclave or a bit of a location where a lot of people lived that served in the temple. That's the context when Jesus teaches about the story of the Good Samaritan and what happened on that road between Jericho and Jerusalem. So because many people and pious people travelled to worship, sitting near the gate of Jericho would be an ideal place to beg for alms to support yourself when you had a disability that prevented you from working. Partially sitting on your coat, but then having it folded over on your lap to collect the pilgrims' alms to the poor, the donations, the coins that they would toss into your lap. And in Mark 10, we read this, Mark 10, 46. Then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and the disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, Tell him to come here. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. People near Bartimaeus saw him as, a, as an interruption, an inconvenience, much like the disciples saw the children when they were wanting to come to Jesus. Asking who was coming, which is noted in um, one of the other gospel accounts, uh, note the difference in identification that is made here. For the crowds, they identified Jesus and differentiated him from the other Jesus that would have been living in the same era as Jesus of Nazareth. They identified Jesus as the the one who grew up in Nazareth, his childhood home. Interestingly, Bartimaeus does not mirror that identification. Either Jesus' reputation had already preceded him uh, from other things that had happened elsewhere, or there was a spiritual awakening that Bartimaeus had, had, had received, that ushered in an identification that for the first time is heard in Mark's account of Jesus. 
son of David. Wow. Just think about what that term means for a moment. This title is dripping with messianic meaning. If you ever doubted this, then check out a couple of chapters later in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, where we read these words on the screen. Later, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, he asked, why do the teachers of the religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? So the religious leaders, the religious lawyers taught that the Messiah was the son of David. And here we have Bartimaeus calling out to Jesus, son of David. Of David. I mean, Bartimaeus, you don't get much more explicit than that, do you? Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, Saviour, Jesus Christ, Jesus, Rescuer, Jesus, Son of David. Isn't it ironic that it takes a blind man to see who Jesus really is when the crowd just sees Jesus as a boy from the back blocks who could do some nifty miracles and some good fancy party tricks? Then Jesus does something odd. Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. Last week, we thought it a bit odd when Jesus asked if the man wanted to get well. Here, Bartimaeus is calling Jesus, son of David, to have mercy on him. And it might have been suggested that Jesus thought Bartimaeus might have wanted some arms or some money After all, if Jesus can arrange uh, for a coin to be pulled out of the mouth of a fish, then he must be a walking fishy bank. But perhaps there's something more going on here. Jesus asks Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? It's not a Santa Claus question, but a question that gives power and agency to Bartimaeus. Like the paralysed man at the pool in last week's message, autonomy, agency and power are in short supply when you have to beg for your daily bread. Here, Jesus intentionally shifts the power back to Bartimaeus, the power of choice, the power, the ability to consider what he really wants. Agency. It's a sense of control that a person feels over their life, the capacity to influence their own thoughts and behaviour, their ability to choose. Jesus asked Bartimaeus, what would you like me to do for you? What would you like me to do for you? Jesus asked. My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has healed you. Instantly, the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. Your faith has healed you. It has saved you. With the return of his sight and the agency to choose where he would go and when he would go anywhere, Bartimaeus chose to follow Jesus. It's been described as Darwin's forgotten masterpiece, The Expressions of Emotions in Man and Animals by Charles Darwin. And it explored the importance of expressing emotions and and the assumptions that we need to have to interpret uh, these key emotions that can help in our communication and also in our survival. Think of a dog snarling 
you know, that's usually a sign that you can assume that there's something not good going on here and we need to take some corrective action. And while our assumptions um, can sometimes be helpful, they're not always accurate. Now, I wonder what Darwin would make of the world of the emoji with these little characters that we send to people in emails and text messages. And while we might see the first one as praying, it also means sorry, or it can also mean high five. There you go. The next is apparently a hugging face, not, oh no, what's going on there? Um, the third is, uh, is apparently um, meant to intend to suggest a disappointed face. And make sure you don't use the last one to invite your friends out for chocolate ice cream because they will think that you're inviting them out to do a poop. Assumptions. They can sometimes be funny when we get them wrong, but sometimes they can also just be downright hurtful. When we assume the intent of emotion, uh, motivation behind things that people do. Because of the past, because of our experiences, we can jump to all kinds of assumptions, can't we? That's why asking questions of clarification is so essential. You see, asking someone what they think or feel about something and listening to them is so important. Ask them what they want, even when you don't have the power to do something about it. It helps you to understand what's going on for them, for the other person, to the degree where they can often feel comfortable and safe to share. In Western society, we have a long history of telling others what is good for them. To our shame, in Australia, we have a long history of telling our First Nations brothers and sisters what they need to do rather than asking them what do they need. If we want to close the gap, let's start asking some good questions and listen to the answers and help when it's possible. At Northern, we've been looking at the potential of redeveloping our site here and, and um, considering how we can best steward what God has blessed us with. And we ended up concluding discussions with one well-meaning developer because they didn't ask important questions about what we needed and they made all sorts of assumptions. In the past, well-meaning Christians um, in mission groups have travelled overseas to introduce Jesus, son of David, to others. To them, they also thought that what they needed to do was to westernise them in the process of sharing God's love with them. That's one of the reasons why I particularly appreciate what um, the Baptist Mission Australia approach to sharing the good news of Jesus is about. Now, Baptist Mission Australia are not perfect. Please don't hear that. But they, one of the things that they value, I really appreciate, and that is this. Mission is contextual and corporate, affirming that all peoples without distinction have been created in God's image and are loved by him, and learning from history, the history of God's people, Baptist Mission Australia seeks to work in ways that empower communities to search the scriptures and develop their own distinctive ways of following Christ within their own distinctive cultures. You know what? That means asking lots of questions. And that's why it's also important that when it comes to praying, 
that we ask questions. While it's not always possible, when you can, when you're offering to pray for someone, ask them how do they want you to pray. Way too often I have seen well-meaning Christians jump ahead and instead of listening and then asking what the person wants, they start doing, including praying. Sometimes it's because we want to move out of an awkward situation where we don't feel super comfortable. And so praying is treated as a handy segue or a way to extract oneself from it. I'll pray and then I can go and do something else. Sometimes it's because we want to start to apply our own theological assumptions on others. If you're sick, then let me pray for your healing. If you're single, then I'll pray for a partner. If you're experiencing persecution, then I'll pray that it stops. But prayer like that can devalue the person and what they believe God wants them to do and what God wants to do through them. It can make us feel good when we've ticked that box, but for others, not so much. I remember on one occasion in a church where we had some well-meaning Christians bring to me um, a person that they wanted me to pray for, for them to come to know Jesus. I could see the person that they brought to me was feeling super uncomfortable. And so I asked them if they wanted to actually be there. And they said, not really. And I asked them, did they want me to pray for them? And they said, no. So I chatted with the person just for a little bit, just to make sure that they felt a little bit more comfortable. And I talked to them about what I might say if I was to pray for them. And then I asked them, would they, were they wanting me to pray? And they said, no. I said, Okay. That's all right. So I allowed them to leave of their own accord. For me to do anything else, I believe, would be a form of spiritual abuse. That's not what Jesus is about. And today we can still make all sorts of assumptions, can't we? We can make assumptions about others, who they are, why they are motivated by what they do, etc. And sometimes that can result in us jumping to all sorts of conclusions. Or... We can be like Jesus and ask, what would you like me to do for you? Let me pray. Jesus, it's confronting when we realise the assumptions that we make. The assumptions that we make about others and their motivation and um, what's going on because of our experience, our history or because of the history that we assume is true because of what the media says. But Jesus, even in the context of us spending time with others and sharing with them about our love for you and your love for them, Lord, we can still get caught up in assumptions. Help us, protect us from that. And as we have the opportunity, help us to model your heart to seek to serve those that you place us in contact with and not to make assumptions about what they need but to take the time to ask, what would you like me to do for you? To empower them, to encourage them to make choices. And Jesus, may we see your love flow through us as we pray with people for the challenges that they face by first asking, what do you believe God wants to do in this situation?
Amen. So how might we respond today? Well, there's a couple of things that have been rattling on in my brain, maybe yours as well, but let's explore that a little bit. How would you respond to Jesus' question to you? What do you want me to do for you? If Jesus is asking that question of you today, how will you respond to him? Who are you praying for? And how might asking this question help you to pray more specifically for others? And I appreciate that you can't do this for everyone, but for those that you can, how might um, you're, you following Jesus' example by asking what you can do for them and your responsibility of what you can do for those that you're responsible for, to ask them, what would you like me to do for you? It could be in a family situation, with neighbours, in a work context, in a variety of situations, to ask those that you have responsibility for, what would you like me to do for you? I encourage you to take some time to reflect on that a little bit.